0: On this day, many in the United States and here in Canada will remember 9-11 and the tragic events in New York where thousands lost their lives in the Twin Tower. And since then, we live in an increasingly violent world, a world tormented with terrorism, You cannot go to the major capitals in Europe without seeing armed soldiers patrolling airports and important national monuments. We read and hear of the events in Nice and those who were killed. We see great evil in these dramatic circumstances We see the perversion of justice in our courts. People, it seems, can do anything and get away with it. They can even kill somebody and get a few years in prison. And depending on how good their lawyer is, they may not even get any time in prison. And so we ask the question, is there any justice? And really the book of Micah, the book from which we read earlier, reminds us of this great fact that God, the God we serve, is a God of justice, a God who judges, that there is an answer to the great evils of society and that answer is to be found in God the judge. Before we get to this theme of God, the judge, the one who comes to judge, I want to take a look briefly at the historical background of this book. Micah, the 8th century prophet, was a contemporary of Isaiah, the prophet, and of Hosea and Amos. His name, Micah, means who is like Yahweh. He comes, at least his origin is in Moresheth, in southwestern Judah. And so there is a belief that Micah was a farmer. He came from a farming town or village. We know, apart from that, very little about his background. He certainly wasn't a person of the city. We also know that he prophesied during the reigns of the Judean kings of Jotham and Ahaz and Hezekiah one of the things that is important about him is that he prophesied to both the northern kingdom the ten kingdoms of Israel and the two kingdoms of Judah and Benjamin and so he was a prophet to all of Israel we know that he also prophesied during the time when the Assyrian Empire rose to prominence in the Middle East He served during a time of great darkness because the Assyrians would not only come to power but they would in 722 BC they would attack the northern kingdom and they would sack Samaria. They would deport many Jews from Samaria and take them to Assyria into captivity. We know that because of the threat of the Assyrians that Judah began to become increasingly uneasy. And because of that, King Ahaz formed an alliance with the Assyrians. In fact, became a client state of the Assyrians because he did not want the Assyrians to invade Judah. We have an interesting account of The attack by Sennacherib, who came against Judah and against Jerusalem. And we, the the, the book of, of Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, interestingly tells us that when the Syrians came against Judah in 701 BC, Micah spoke and called upon. The children of Judah to repent in Jeremiah 26. In fact, Jeremiah, uh, the book re- references Micah, in Jeremiah 26, 18 and 19. And because of his preaching, Hezekiah repented, turned to the Lord and Judah, uh, Judah was spared from Sennacherib's attack. He had to return to his land. It was a time then of political tension because of the imperial ambitions of the Assyrians the times in which Micah prophesied was not only one of political and international upheaval because of the rising of this dominant power, it was also a time of social injustice. It seems, if you were to read in chapter 2 of Micah, that the rich continually became rich. In fact, they were preying on the poor, and Micah tells us that the rich, in their beds, instead of going to sleep at night, they were devising, plotting, making up schemes as to how they could enrich themselves at the expense of the poor. It's in chapter 2, woe to those who devise iniquity and work out evil on their beds. At morning, light they practice it. So at night, they schemed how to do evil. And at, in the morning, they execute their plans. They covet fields and take them by violence. Also, houses and seize them. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. Great social evil. It was also spiritually a time of moral bankruptcy, there was idolatry. In the land and when Hezekiah came to the throne he led a gradual reform that removed idolatry but it was never completely removed from Israel and from Judah and certainly not from the northern kingdom of Israel so because then of the social and the spiritual inequities and the ungodliness of a time the Lord calls this man a farmer from the country And sends him to bring God's word to both Judah and Samaria and the northern kingdoms. In fact, the book of Micah is a collection then of visions and oracles and prophecies. It is a call to Israel and Judah who had broken God's covenant. And in fact... What we have here is a message that is very similar to the book of Isaiah. The only difference, or where the major difference, is that uh, Isaiah is a massive work, whereas this is a short book. But the theology of Isaiah is compressed in the book of Micah. And there are really three divisions. There is the oracles of judgment in chapters 1 to 2. Oracles of salvation in chapter 3 to 5, and then oracles of judgment and salvation in chapter 6 to 7. And what God essentially says through these prophecies is that God will bring judgment upon his people, but there is the promise of future restoration. What I want to do is to give a cursory, in other words, not a, a particularly detailed exposition of chapter 1, but to draw out some themes from this Book in which God, and this chapter in which God brings a lawsuit and threatens judgment upon his people. In verses 1 to 7, as we see this threat of the coming judgment, one of the themes that I think that rises to the fore in these seven verses is the sovereignty of the coming judge. Notice the word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham and Ahaz and Hezekiah, king of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom, and Jerusalem. Hear, all you peoples, listen, O earth, and all that is in it. Let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. Here in verses 1 to 7, The prophet will speak about God's coming judgment upon the northern kingdom, upon Samaria. And while this is the major theme, undergirding this theme of divine judgment is the theme of God's sovereignty, the sovereignty of the coming judge. The writer, the prophet, depicts God as the one who is a sovereign ruler of the world. And you see something of God's sovereignty and his rule in the fact that Micah refers to God as the Lord and as the Lord God. Notice this in verse 1, the word of the Lord. This term, Yahweh, refers to God as a covenant God. But God is not only the God of covenant, God is the supreme ruler. Let the Lord God be a witness against you. In verse 2, For the Lord is coming. You see, Micah portrays God as the sovereign ruler over all the earth. And we find this fact later in chapter 4 and verse 13, where the writer clearly says, Arise and thresh, O daughters of Zion, for I will make your horn iron and I will make your hooves bronze, and you shall beat in pieces many people. I will consecrate their grain to the Lord and the substance to the Lord of the whole earth. You see, the God who is the coming judge is the Lord, the sovereign Lord who rules over all the earth. God is king and the only king. Let the Lord God be a witness against you. In verse 3, for behold, the Lord is coming out of his place. And will come down and thread on the high places of the earth. The mountains will melt under him. And the valley will split like wax before the fire. And like water pour down a steep place. So the God who is coming in judgment is the sovereign judge. And so Micah speaks of God. And the sovereignty of the one who is the coming judge. The judge of all the nations. He's not a provincial God. He doesn't rule in a particular place. This is one of the absurdities of ancient Near Eastern religions. They had multiple gods. They had gods who reigned in the mountains. God who reigns in the plain. They had gods who reigned over the seas. And that is why very often when the prophets like Isaiah or Micah speaks of God, they speak of God as the God of the entire earth. He doesn't just rule in a particular locality. He reigns. And because he's a sovereign over the world, whose will and rule is established, he will judge all men. He will come to judge all men. So the Lord brings this lawsuit against humanity. And we are told that this one is coming from his holy temple. He is judge. He is a sovereign judge because he rules over all. And here Micah depicts this God as the one who arises. He arises from his holy temple in verse 2. This reference to God arising from his holy temple is a reference to heaven. Micah looks into the future. He's given a divine telescope. And he sees a day when God will begin to act. God will, in a sense, arise and come from his holy temple. He will come to judge. This is a God who will come to judge because he's sovereign not only in his reign, but he's sovereign in his knowledge, in his wisdom. He sees and understands all things that occur on earth. He's sovereign in his power. Here we have an awesome depiction of theophany, the appearance of God. That when God comes to judge, he will tread on the high places of the earth. The mountains will melt under him. Here we have a vivid picture of how God is going to come in judgment. And in the severity of his judgment, the writer depicts God's severe judgment as fire which melts the mountains so that it flows like water. You see, God will bring judgment and the feeble strength of the nations will melt. Now, God will judge. And he will use the Assyrians against Samaria. And later he will use the Babylonians. But he will arise. He will come to judge. And notice that when the writer speaks in verse 3 of the coming of the Lord of judge. There is no if and but. It is not maybe. This is predictive prophecy. God is coming. And when he comes, the mountains will melt under him. The valleys will split. And light walks from before the fire fire, like water poured down a steep place. God will come. It is not simply that God will come merely to flex his muscles. You know, you you hear quite often of of great nations having military uh, mock battles. They're preparing, you know, war uh, ships and planes and, Amphibious crafts landing as they have war games. It occurs off the coast of South Korea. The Russians do it in the Black Sea. The Americans uh, off the coast of Japan and South Korea. These mock battles, flexing of muscles and military muscle. But God does not come merely to flex his muscles, to show that he's powerful. He comes. In response to transgression. All this is for the transgression of Jacob. Why does God come to judge? It is transgression. And the word transgression means rebellion. It is because the people of God has rebelled. And so he says, all this. This God who comes to judge. He does so because his people have broken covenant. They have rebelled against him. For and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of the rebellion of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? In other words, he's asking, who has rebelled? It is Samaria. And what are the high places of Judah? Are they not Jerusalem? Both, Samaria in the north and Judah in the south, have rebelled against God, and he comes then to judge. They had overstepped the mark. They had turned away from the ways of the Lord. And this God who is sovereign, We'll hold them accountable. We need to know that the God of heaven is the Lord of all the earth. And that he will hold all men accountable. That he will come to judge. And this is what Micah sees. He sees the sovereignty of God, the, the God of sovereign power and judgment who comes to judge. And so we notice then in verses at least 1 to 6, we see something there of the sovereignty of the one who comes to judge every man is responsible to him every man will give an account to him but in verse 6 the text not only speaks of the sovereignty of the the coming judge the text speaks of the futility of idols you see something of the sovereignty of the coming judge now we see something of the futility of idols Here Micah says all her carved images shall be beaten to pieces and all her pay as a harlot shall be burned with fire. All her idols I will lay desolate. Notice the emphasis upon all. For she gathered from the pay of harlot and they shall return to the pay of a harlot. Micah reveals that God's essential, uh, the, the, the very base of God's anger against his people, at least those in Samaria, is because of idolatry. This was the perennial problem with the people of God. You see, God is a jealous God. And it's one of the reasons he told the people of Israel, you shall have no other gods beside me. Why? Because I am a jealous God. And the children of Israel were always enticed by the gods of the nations. Here in Samaria, they were worshipping Baal, the chief god, the god who they thought brought them security and fertility. And and he talks in this verse, verse 7, about having received the pay of a harlot. And there's a suggestion that the, the children of samaria the people of god in israel had engaged in idolatry and in cult or in cult prostitution one of the things that was so offensive about the idols of the nations especially canaanite religion is that they had these temple prostitutes when they set up a shrine to worship baal there were priests in those shrines, and there were also prostitutes. And the people would engage, the men would engage with sec- in sexual intercourse with these women, because they saw that as a means of receiving prosperity. It was interesting that they would think that because they engage in sexual sin, that somehow the gods would turn and bless them with prosperity. You see how perverse the idea is. Sin is essentially irrational. The more you engage in sexual immorality with prostitutes, the more your God will bless you. That's because your God is immoral. And so they were engaged in harlotry. They were worshiping this God of ba- this God Baal for prosperity and security and here the Lord says all her carved images shall be beaten to pieces that when God comes he will destroy her idols he will lay them desolate he will destroy their harlotry and they shall return to the pay of a harlot they will be left bankrupt and destitute what the text is showing is that there is no profit in idolatry because god will indeed destroy the things in which men trust the things that men look to for security and prosperity the thing that men look to as a hope and as an anchor god will destroy you see the sovereignty of the coming king you see the futility of idols And it is precisely because God is exclusive that he will brook no rival. It is because he is unique and the only God that he will never stomach idolatry but will destroy the idols that men trust upon. But if the passage shows us the sovereignty of the coming king and the futility of trusting in idols, it also shows us the impartiality Of divine judgment verses 6 to 8 verses 8 to 16 is difficult in the passage as we look at it you read that and you find a number of names and you find the names of many strange cities but what you have in verses 8 to 16 is a reflection of the impartiality of God. You see the futility of idols in verse 7, but now you see the impartiality of divine judgment. Because whereas in verses 1 to 7, we see God coming to judge Samaria in the north, in verses 8 to 16, the writer shifts and shows that God will also judge Judah. Judah, where the temple is on Mount Zion. The very people of God. They will be judged. So he switches focus from Israel and Samaria in the north to Jerusalem and Judah in the south. Therefore, I will wail and howl. I will go stripped and naked. I will make a wailing like the jackals and a mourning like the ostriches. For her wounds are incurable. In other words, her judgment is inescapable. For it has come to Judah, it has come to the gate of my people to Jerusalem. What is he saying? He's saying judgment is not only reserved for Samaria, it is also to be visited upon Judah. And he offers a profound sense of his grief. He weeps and laments and goes about naked. Because he sees judgment not only upon Israel but judgment upon Judah and their wound is incurable. They will not escape the judgment of God. What you find in the next few verses is a sense of God's judgment upon these towns and villages around Jerusalem in fact he names nine towns nine towns that surround Jerusalem and he gives an indication of what will happen now the judgment he's speaking of on Judah and on these nine towns and villages is of course referring to The army that will invade them in 701, the Assyrian army that will come to these cities and these towns. And you notice how he begins. Tell it not in Goth. Weep not at all in Beth Aphra. Tell it not in Goth. And you read in Second Samuel. You find that there are overtones to the weeping of David when he reflects upon the death of Saul and Jonathan. He says, Tell it not in God. Don't publicize this. He says, Something terrible is coming upon Judah and don't speak about it. Don't broadcast it. It's too horrible. He sees in the future the visit of God. He says, Tell it not in God. This is not something to celebrate, this is not something to publicize because the Lord is coming in judgment weep not at all in Beth Afra and yet he says roll yourself in the dust don't cry aloud don't shout that everybody can hear you but you must roll in the dust. You must weep because judgment is coming. In verse 11, he speaks to the inhabitant of the town of Safir. Pass by in naked shame, you inhabitants of Safir. You know, the, in, in the original, in the Hebrew, there's a lot of play on names. It's very hard to translate that and to show that in the, in the, in the English. But there is a play on the names that are being used. He tells the inhabitants of Saphir to disrobe themselves in grief. The inhabitants of Zion, he says, does not go out. Lock yourself in. Hide. Go in hiding. Beth Ezel must mourn. Though it is seen as a place of security, it will be taken away. He's talking about the invasion of the foreign army. He continues, the people of Moath will pine for good. People who enjoy good will lose all the pleasure and the good they once enjoyed. And why? Because disaster is coming down from the Lord. This judgment that comes via the Assyrian is a judgment that comes from the Lord. It is the Lord who will send The Assyrians as his whip, as his tool of punishment. And so he continues. Disaster has come down from the Lord to the gate of Jerusalem. He says to the inhabitants of Lashish, harness the chariot to the swift steeds. What is he telling them? Well, they had their chariots. And they had fast horses. He says, hitch your chariots to fast horses. That is, try to get away. Try to flee. Because, you see, it is at Lashish that evil began. She was the beginning of sin to the daughters of Zion. She, this town, led the people of God into evil. For the transgression of Israel was found in you. Then he gives instruction and brings the town from which he comes. Moresh at Gath. Therefore, you shall give presents to Morashat Goth. He speaks of the nation as being taken away, as a bride or as a bridegroom who gives presents to his bride. He says, "No, you are about to be taken away. So give presents, like a bridegroom gives to the bride. Give presents to Morashat Goth. The houses of Ash- Ashiv shall be a lie to the king of Israel." He speaks, furthermore, I will yet bring an heir to you, O inhabitants of Mareshah. And he's speaking now about the fact that even the royal family in Israel will seek to flee. So he says, the glory of Israel, referring to the Davidic line, the glory of Israel shall come to Adullam. And you know, David hid in the cave of Adullam. And so he says, Flee. You, like your, David, your father David, seek to flee and to hide. He speaks to the religious leaders. He says, make yourself bald and cut off your hair. You see, balding the head and cutting off the hair was a sign of mourning in the Old Testament. And he's saying to these people, you must mourn. Shave your head. Why? Because of your precious children. Enlarge your baldness like an eagle, for they shall go from you into captivity. All of this. It's a dirge. It's a dirge because the prophet sees God's judgment coming upon Judah, upon the towns of Judah, because of their rebellion against God. You see, God's judgment is impartial. You see the sovereignty of God as the coming Lord to judge. You see the futility of idols, because God will judge the idols that they trust in. But you see the impartiality of God, that he will bring judgment upon even those in Israel who had a favored status, those who had the temple and the ark, those who lived in the city where God's glory dwelt, because they too sinned like, the, like those in Samaria, they too will also know the judgment of God, and it would be fierce. Eli Wiesel, in his book, Night, tells a horrifying story of an incident in a Nazi concentration camp. He tells us that one day they were coming back from work when they saw three gallows and three chairs. And there were three prisoners to be hung that day but what was shocking about this particular hanging, it wasn't the first that the Nazis had hung people in the death in this concentration camp, but on this day they had three prisoners and one of them was a child. And he observed that the SS, the police of the Nazis, were unusually perturbed, perhaps because they were going to hang a child before. Thousands and they had never done that before. He talked about how they put the rope around the necks of the three and around the neck of this little boy. And how they were placed on the chair. And why as I said one they did that? Was somebody behind who says, where is God in all of this? And he tells how they pulled away the chair from beneath these two men and this little boy. The two men died quickly. But the little boy, because he was so light did not die right away. He struggled for a while and choked. And they watched him struggling with a rope around his neck and his feet kicking. And the voice from behind him came again, where is God in all of this? We have seen great evil. There is a spirit of evil in the world. That men can gloat and rejoice in killing one another, in chopping off people's neck, and see that as doing the work of God. Surely there is great evil in our world. And we ask the question where is God in all of this? The answer was given to Wiesel. Look, he's there on the gallows. I think it was a wrong answer. Because the answer to the question, where is God in all of this, is that he's right there on his throne. And one day he will come and he will put all things right. I am the Lord and justice is mine vengeance he says is mine and I shall repay it is possible that we may go to court and we may lose even though we are on the side of the right we may see the court of justice trampled by those who have power and influence and money and we ask where is God in all of this but God is still on the throne and one day he will arise And he will call all men to himself. And he will give every man according to what he has done. It is appointed unto man once to die. And after death comes the judgment. I am often amazed how people very often feel that they don't have to face the judgment. They think that they will never face God. if you cannot escape death. If we don't have the power to keep ourselves alive and escape death, how can we ever escape God who is greater than death? It is appointed unto man once to die, and after that the judgment. God is just, and God is righteous, and he will set the scales of justice right. If we have enough money... If we have enough power, we can tilt the scales of justice. But the judge of the heavens and the earth, the king of glory who always does right, will finally settle matters. And it means for you and for me that we are not to take justice in our own hands, we must leave justice to God and vengeance to God because he will repay. What do we do when people do evil against us? We may want to fight for it. People said, you know what, you are advocating that we should become doormats. Let people take away your house and your money and do all kinds of things and do nothing. Well, my friends, you're doing a lot. When you do nothing, you're doing a lot. You're leaving justice to God. You know, I'd rather God give me justice than I give myself justice. Because God's justice is always perfect. Believe these matters in the hands of God because God one day will do right. The king of heaven will do right. He who sows to the flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the spirit will of the spirit reap everlasting life. But while we recognize that God is coming to judge. That one day he will come and he will call those who are dead to life and he will assemble them before his throne. He will say to those who have done evil, "Depart from me, I do not know you." He said to those who have lived for him, "Come, enter into the joy of the Lord." Here will be a day of reckoning. We must rejoice that our God is just, but we must also bear in mind that because God is a God of justice, He is a God of impartiality, and therefore while we lament the sins of the world we must be careful that we do not arrogate to ourselves this sense of invincibility we must never think that we can take god for granted we who are believers must know that god also judges our sins disciplines us for our sins now we do know that we have by the grace of God, come already in a sense to the judgment seat of God. Because our Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf has borne God's judgment and dealt with our sins. We already know the verdict. We have already received the verdict at the throne of grace. The verdict is not guilty and it is because Jesus Christ was guilty on our account. Even though he knew no sin, he bore our sins, that God may deliver us from that awful death. But that should, not, that should not lead us to contempt God's will and to live ungodly. For judgment must begin at the house of God. God will discipline us if we live in sin because, you see, he hates sin. He's a God of justice. So the text reminds us that God is the great and sovereign judge and the impartial judge who hates sin in, in sinners and in the world and he hates sin even amongst his people. But the passage also calls us and reminds us of the danger of syncretism or idolatry. The people of Israel and of Judah gave themselves to idols But God promises to judge them and judge their idols, to shatter the very things in which they trust. We must also, therefore, as we live in this age, be careful of idolatry and syncretism. And when I talk about syncretism, I mean when we worship God and we worship idols together. Now we may say, but we are too sophisticated to do that. We can't be worshipping idols today in the 21st century. I mean, we are intelligent people. You don't have a little ball statue that we spit on and shine and walk around in our pockets with or have on our mantelpiece and bow down before them. Who does that? At least not us as sophisticated Westerners. Yeah, in the Church of Colosse, they had idols. They were syncretistic. They were serving God, but they were involved in magic. They trusted God to help them. But they wanted to use manipulation to work things in their favor. They were syncretistic and idolatrous because they were praying and worshipping angels. And even in our age, we too are syncretistic. We have our modern idols. We believe in serving God, but we also believe in serving mammon, money. We think of science and technology as our savior. In our churches, we practice the seeker-sensitive approach to worship. We want to reach men and women for the gospel. So what do we do? We dumb down theology. We don't talk about hell and about sin and about righteousness and about judgment. you know why? Because if you do that, your churches are not going to grow. If you tell men that there's a God who is just and holy, who judges sin, they're not going to want to listen to you so you take away everything that is offensive from the gospel you tell them if you come to god he's going to give you a big house and a beautiful wife and a handsome husband and he's going to give you promotions and the bmw and the jaguar that you want life is going to be merry you've got to be positive the seeker sensitive you try to make unbelievers feel comfortable my dear friends our task as preachers and christians is to afflict the comfortable, and comfort the afflicted. Our business is not in the, is not to comfort sinners, but to tell them that there is a savior. Our hope of reaching the world is not in committees, is not using technology. It's an amazing thing, you know. You're going to churches today. You think you're in a movie theater. The lights are dark. I'm not to This church is, I mean, there's a darkness in churches today. It's setting the mood and the, the right ambience. People are not saved by ambience. They're saved by the power of God. You didn't see Jesus dulling the brilliance of the sun. He didn't create a special ambience, special music. Didn't have scented candles, trying to attract men. He told men, The kingdom of God has arrived, repent and believe. And today we see syncretism and idolatry in the church because we, on one hand, worship God, but we worship technology and we worship our own means. Let's be clear that whatever we trust, God will destroy. We must have no God. But God we must serve him and him alone but my friends I want you to know that in this passage there is good news see Micah says to his generation therefore I will wail and I will hold I will go stripped and naked I will make a wailing at the jackals and the mourning at the ostriches for her wounds are incurable As he looked at his generation, he says, Her wounds are incurable. Her judgment is inescapable. But I want you to know that our wounds, our sins, and our judgment, they are not inescapable. That by the grace of God and by the mercies of Christ, we can escape judgment. Why? Because we have Christ our Savior. Our wounds are curable. They are curable by grace. And as we see sin in our hearts and lives, we must go to the throne of grace because there is a balm in Gilead, there is a cure in the cross. And any man or woman who is riddled with sin, who comes to Jesus, you're going to know that your wounds are curable by grace. I want you to know that there is power in the blood that cleanses sin, that gives victory over idolatry and sin. Thank God that our sins are curable because there is healing, spiritual healing in the cross. What must we do with sin in the world? We must look to God as the great judge. What must we do with sin in our hearts? We must go to the cross. For from the cross comes forgiveness and life and power. We must look to Jesus who alone can cure us from our sins and deliver us from the wrath to come. For Jesus' sake, amen.